Guys, we've been working through uh, the book of Acts. We've only got three more installments of the series left. So today and the next two weeks. How about that? We've actually worked through the enti- almost through the entire book of Acts. Now, to be fair, we've skipped like massive chunks of it, but we've essentially hit every chapter. This morning, we're going to cover six chapters. So, should take us a good three hours because we're ready. Uh, no, we won't do that. Um, but we are. We're going to go through chapters 21 to 26. And guys, we are now on the home stretch. You can feel it if you've been reading, if you, if you kind of step back and look at the context of Acts, where we've come from, of the life of the Apostle Paul in particular. We are now on the home stretch. He's returning to Jerusalem. He's finished his third and final missionary journey. After arriving in Jerusalem, he will then make a beeline towards Rome, which is where the book essentially ends in Acts 28. Um, But let's go ahead and pick up where we left off next week. If you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and flip it open to Acts chapter 20. Um, And we will get right into it. So, we left off last week. If you weren't here, uh, I don't know if the podcast actually made it up yet. It, It should be up there at some point. Um, sort of giving a little glance up to my tech guys. It should be up there by this evening. <clears throat> and uh, sorry, I'm just messing with you guys. The podcast, you can always catch up if you missed a Sunday. We left the Apostle Paul in the city of, where was he? Anyone remember? Was it Miletus? Yes. No help at all. Yeah, I believe he was in uh, Miletus. Mm-hmm. Thank you. He was preaching uh, in an upper room on the third level of a house uh, in the Mediterranean, just on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And uh, he's preaching and preaching on into the night. He's rambling on like any good Bible preacher. And there's a young man named Eutychus who's sitting in the window seal who falls asleep, falls out of the window, hits the ground three stories down, dies, as you would expect, and Paul leaps into action, runs downstairs, picks the young man up in his arms, presumably prays for him, and he comes back to life. Naturally, Paul then goes back upstairs, and they continue the beating, goes on into the break of dawn. Eventually, he leaves Miletus, Um, which takes us to Acts chapter uh, 21. Now, 25 years, nearly 25 years have now gone by since Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Um, He's visited nearly 50 cities, approximately 50 cities, all around Asia and the Mediterranean. He's experienced imprisonment, torture, stoning, violent mobs, as well as incredible miracles, not to mention many, many people putting their faith in Jesus and joining and joining the family of God. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is now in Troas on the tail end of his third missionary journey. He is resolved in the spirit to return to Jerusalem, as I said, and from there finally make his way to Rome. That's Acts chapter 20. 
Acts chapter 21. Paul arrives at Jerusalem, but only to be attacked by the leaders of the Jews. He's then arrested in the temple and taken into custody by the Roman tribune um, of Jerusalem at the time, a guy named Claudius Lysias. Acts chapter 22. Paul is literally carried out of the temple courtyard by Roman soldiers so as not to be torn to pieces by the violent mob that had assembled to take him out. Claudius, the Roman tribune, then gives orders that Paul should be examined by flogging to find out what the Jews were freaking out about. He couldn't ascertain as to why this violent mob had assembled because of this guy named Paul. But just as Paul was about to be flogged or or tortured, he said to the centurion uh, soldier standing by, is it lawful for a Roman citizen to be flogged before he's been condemned? Wink. (laughs) He pulls the Roman citizen card and immediately... The centurion panics, he goes to the tribune, Claudius, and he informs him that we've imprisoned, we've tied up, we're about to torture an actual Roman citizen. Naturally, Claudius uh, commands that he be unbound, but left imprisoned so as to protect him from the angry mob. And he wants to know what exactly are his accusers accusing him of, which brings us to Acts chapter 23. While Paul is still in custody... This is where it gets really crazy. A group of more than 40 Jewish assassins come together and take an oath to neither eat nor drink till they've killed Paul. Okay, this is serious business. Somehow, Paul's nephew, says the son of his sister, finds out about the, uh, this group of 40 Jewish assassins, and he informs Uh, Paul. Paul instructs his nephew to go tell the Roman tribune. So Claudius, when he hears, um, decides he's not going to be hornswoggled by a bunch of Jewish rebels, and therefore arranges for Paul to be taken to Caesarea and transferred into the custody of the Roman governor, Felix. Okay, this is called a build-up. Romans, or excuse me, Acts chapter 25 Uh, Sorry, Acts chapter 24. Felix, the governor of this province, who apparently was quite interested in Paul and this movement known as The Way, ended up keeping Paul in custody for two whole years, after which time uh, Felix was succeeded by another governor called Porcius Festus, or simply Festus. Acts chapter 25. Are you guys tracking with me? We've just gone through five chapters of Acts. Under Festus, Paul is put on trial once again. Two years gone by. The Jews want Festus to send him back to stand trial in Jerusalem so they can attempt to assassinate him again on his way back to Jerusalem. But Paul, as a Roman citizen, rather cleverly appeals to Caesar. However, 
before Felix sends Paul to Caesar in Rome, a guy named King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. I love that name, Bernice. It sounds so utterly out of place. (laughs) Bernice. It's a good name, just King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. (laughs) They happen to show up in Caesarea. We're almost there. And uh, so Felix sends Paul to Caesarea, um, and King Agrippa and his wife show up, and they request to, to hear from this Paul who's been in prison. So, here we are, Acts chapter 25. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Next slide. Finally, Acts chapter 26. Picture it. It's a royal gathering. Lots of pomp. Lots of important people. Lots of big to-dos. And finally, King Agrippa stands. He's convening over the trial, and he says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand to make his defense. This is, this is a climactic moment. Okay, two years have gone by since his arrest in Jerusalem. He's been handed off between several authorities. He's appealed to, to, to not only his citizenship, but even to Caesar himself. And now here he stands before King Agrippa and his wife Bernice, the governor Felix, and all the other important people who have gathered in the audience hall to hear this man Paul make his defense. What do you suppose he says? What would you say? I mean, this is, this is an epic moment. We're almost at the very end of Acts. And here Paul, just before, he, before being shipped off to Rome, to stand before Caesar himself, finds himself before a royal audience. I mean, if he can influence these people, he could potentially influence the empire. What does he say? Let's go to the next one. Paul opens his mouth, and he says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. For they, know, for they have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. What is Paul saying? Well, obviously he goes on, but Paul is telling his story. This is... This is extraordinary slash kind of bizarre. What does he say before the king, the governor, and all the people of pomp and importance? He tells his story. 
He shares his testimony, as, as we would say. He begins with his childhood. He says, everyone here knows I grew up in church. In fact, I was one of those kids who really enjoyed religion, my religion, so much that I became one of the elite. I mean, I was, I was part of the strictest party of our religion. I lived as a Pharisee. He goes on to say how eventually he became so passionate, so zealous, so serious about his religion that when he found out about this new sect known as the way these followers, these disciples of this alleged Christ named Jesus, that he determined to stamp them out. Elsewhere, he tells his story and he, he says that, look, I was there when St. Stephen was stoned to death. I can remember vividly standing by watching as this Christian man, this follower of this Jesus, was stoned to death because of his faith in and love for Christ. And I approved. Not only did I approve, I was determined to kill them all. At the very least, see them behind bars. And he goes on to say, but one day as I was actually on my way with like letters of permission, commissioned by the leaders of my religious group to imprison, to take captive, maybe even stone any of these disciples of Jesus that I found on my way to Damascus, Jesus himself appeared to me in a blinding light and everything changed. He tells this royal audience how he realized how he'd been blind. How he had been blind and how Jesus finally opened his eyes. He goes on to say in verse 18 of chapter 26 that not only did Jesus open my eyes, but he promised to send me to open the eyes of others as well so that they too might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness and be given a place to belong as children in the family of God. Paul shares his story. I love that. I love that. there's one thing that stands out as we're nearing the end of our journey through Acts it's that God God isn't attempting to simply convey mere information about himself this is actually um, this is the, pro- the slight problem that I have with systematic theology it can get a little abstract 
can be super helpful to be sure, but sometimes we can forget that we're talking about God, a living being who loves, who feels, who is passionate about us. Acts is about a God who's utterly consumed with rescuing his lost children. It's the reenactment of God's story in God's people. The story that keeps getting told and told and retold over and over again. It's the story of God redeeming disillusioned and broken people. That's Paul. People unable to see past their own pasts and their crippling self-absorption. It's the story of Jesus opening the eyes of ordinary sinful people and giving every one of us the chance to get involved, to become part of God's story and begin living the life that we are given life for in the first place, to discover what it means to go from death to new life. How is your story coming along? How's your story? You think about the story of God, um, it, is, it is absolutely an epic one. It's full of tragedy, it's, it's, it's full of impossible circumstances. It's full of passion. It's full of betrayal. It's full of broken people. It's full of death. Ultimately, it climaxes with the story of new life. It's the story of redemption, and it's the story that God wants to tell, wants to reenact in our own lives. How is your story Better question, how is our story coming along? What we're doing here, this community that God has started, we have a story to tell together. This is not just like, well, I've got nothing better to do. I was just telling someone a minute ago um, how before we moved to Portland to be a part of this, we were living in Corvallis. And I had been with my family in Corvallis for maybe like two months. Um, before I realized that when we moved to Portland, I think maybe the hardest thing about the whole transition, the whole process, will be leaving Corvallis. It was a cush life, let me tell you something. It was just nice, it was easy, it was fun. Like we were immediately surrounded by this amazing group of people who paid attention to us, who thought we were wonderful, who gave us gifts, and we just kind of came on staff to this relatively large church called Grace City in Corvallis, and, and it was just, just kind of easy, like on every level. I mean, you know, life was still life, and we had our challenges, um, but gosh, it was nice. And then, of course, the day came. We were in Corvallis exactly one year. God said, right, you ready to go? Said, said something like that. And so here we are. Almost a year has gone by. And let me tell you something. What a roller coaster. Up and down, loop-de-loops, corkscrews, and all of that. 
It's the story of God being retold in our lives. It's the story of God's faithfulness. It's the story of God's courage, his love. It's the story of of Jesus. It's the story of sacrificial love. It's the story of the cross. Um, I was reminded last night I was thinking about this as I do and uh, funny story two years ago I was uh, we were actually in California this was just, this was just pre-Corvallis and uh, a friend of mine who's an elder at a, at a nice church uh, there in central California where we were, were living for a minute invited me to come along to their, their men's meeting, their like monthly dinner. And uh, he asked me to come along to actually be the guest speaker for the, their big gathering that night. I was like, yeah, sounds great. Um, so I showed up and felt like the new guy. Maybe some of you can relate. And I remember one of the, the older guys there approached me and started to chat with me and he said, oh, hey, I'm not, I'm not seeing you before. What's your name? I said, I'm Simon. I'm new. This is my first time. He's like, oh. He leaned in a little bit. He said, are you a Christian? <laughs> and I leaned in. I said, yeah. And then he leaned in a little bit more. He said, are you a saved Christian? <laughs> I leaned in a little bit more and I said, I hope so. <laughs> And he kind of had this surprised look on his face, and he said, what do you mean you hope so? You need to know so. Part of me was amused. Part of me was slightly offended. Like, I'm new. Like, is this how you treat new guys here? Like, this, I'm, I think I might have to switch up my sermon. I didn't mention to him that I was, like, the guest speaker for the night. I just kind of said, well, you know, like, I just, I kind of hope I'm going to heaven. Like, I don't know. Like, God knows. And in fact, I'm actually quite confident that like, I'm, I'm good with God. Like, I, I know that, that Jesus died for my sins and that he rose from the dead. Um, so in fact, I really have no doubt about it because um, it, it virtually has nothing to do with me. Uh, but I just couldn't resist messing, messing with this guy a little bit. <laughs> so anyways, uh, as the night went on, I ended up standing up and kind of looking straight at him like, yeah, I'm saved, bro. Like, I'm the preacher. <laughs> Are you a saved Christian? I knew what he was getting at. I knew what he was getting at. His question was, look, at, there, there's, there's people who, who go to church. There's people who like to dabble in the Christian religion. And that's, that's normal. That's not like evil or anything like that. But then there's but are you like really a Christian? Like do you, do you get like what it is? Like do you, do you understand what it actually means to participate in the story of God? Do you, do you realize what it, what it is to lose your own life so that you might gain new life in Jesus Christ? Like do you get that? That's what he was asking. 
And guys, it's a question we need to ask ourselves regularly. Even if you're not a Christian, it's so important that, that we ask the question, well, what, what is the story of God? Like, what might my story become if, in fact, I were to surrender my all to Jesus? What are the implications? What does that mean? Well, you might think it means, well, you know, like, I, 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 I try to be a good person, mix in a little morality, not bad. Um, and then God, in return, is supposed to, like, help me and be nice to me and, and give me good things and bless me. This is, this is how it works, right? This is religion. Well, yeah, that is exactly how religion works. Um, it couldn't be any further from the story of God. To be a real Christian, to participate in the story of the cross, it's not an invitation to barter with the creator of the universe. Like, I'll give you my Sunday if you give me a spouse. Like, I'll give you, you know, 10% of my income if you give me success in my business. That, that's not it at all. And in fact, I suspect a lot of us, if not all of us, to varying degrees in our own ways, we, we sort of slip into this way of thinking without thinking much about it at all. And when that happens, we can become extremely frustrated. Like, it's not working. My story is rubbish. <laughs> Where is God? I've given everything. I'm getting nothing back. Yeah, that, that is a bit of a miserable story. That's not the story of God. Let me read this to you. This is Paul. In his letter to the Galatians, he says, he's reminding them of what they've signed up for. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I have, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what the story of the cross is? You know what the story that we're invited to participate in? The story that's meant to become ours as God retells his own through our lives? It's the story that when I die to my own agenda, my own life, when I ceased being my own king, my own God, and submit myself, give my life to the true and rightful king of my life and all of creation, I find myself caught up in a new kind of life. I discover a life that I could have never have achieved or, or built up or attained to left to my own devices. This is what Jesus said, and he said, it's in order to find life, you've got to lose life. 
your life, your broken life. You've got to surrender. And then you can experience mine. And so when we find ourselves giving, sacrificing, or like Paul, he gave up everything. And we could look at verse after verse after verse after verse saying, I count my life as worth nothing if only I might, if only I might attain to the life that Jesus has promised me. I don't, he's about to go to Jerusalem and multiple times along the way, the 21 to 26, people come to him and say, don't go to Jerusalem, you're gonna die. And it even says at one point that by the Spirit, like some fellow disciples are, are sort of like tapping into what the Spirit of God is saying. And they say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. The Spirit's been telling us if you go, like you're going to end up dying or at least being tied up and imprisoned. And Paul's response is like, you're breaking my heart. Like you're making this very, very difficult. I don't care. My life is no longer my own. And I'm not doing this to get something in return, to get something back. I've already been given everything. The story of God is the story of broken people learning to live lifestyles of gratitude. Having this realization this, this ever-increasing revelation that I have been given everything. I've lost nothing because what is it compared to the surpassing worth of knowing and being known by God? It makes the Christian story a, a tale of worship. I'm not obligated to serve you people. I don't even know half you people. And even if I did, I probably wouldn't like you much. Probably wouldn't like me if you know me, knew me a bit better. Doesn't matter. I'm not doing this to get anything from any of you. Much less God himself. Our story, it's a reenactment of God's story. It's I've been given everything. I'm rich. I'm rich. I've got more than enough to go around. And guys, let me tell you something. If you're feeling exhausted in your Christian experience, if your story is like, dude, my story, my story is a dud. Like, I don't like my story. I want a new story. Might I suggest that you rediscover the story of the cross? Never mind what you might, may or may not get out of it. Guys, we've been given everything. God has given us himself. Jesus is the treasure hidden in that field. That field that would be worth selling everything for if we could just get that treasure. This is a story that's reenacted in our relationships, in our community, 
in our friendships, in our marriages. I've been doing a lot of like premarital counseling lately. The exciting thing about being a part of a church plant with a bunch of young people kicking it off is that it's only a matter of time before people start hooking up and like getting married. It's wonderful, it's great. We'll call it new life. I pray a lot for you guys. But I find myself having conversations with people like, oh, you know, I'm just, it's just so hard and, and, and they're not, I'm not getting what I expected. Okay, well, the hard answer is, yeah, like if you're expecting anything, I, I suggest maybe just starting over. That's, that's a really, really bad way to begin a relationship, much less a marriage. When you come into a relationship, we come in rich, hands full of Jesus saying, I've got nothing but, but love to spare. I've got nothing but a desire to give. A love that just seems to keep pouring out. And I'm not about to share it with you that I might get something back. This is why Jesus said that it is in fact more blessed to give than to receive. You are more blessed in your giving than you're needing to get something back. God didn't love us with some sort of string attached. He didn't send his son Jesus so that he could get something from us. It was simply who he was. And let me end here because it's Mother's Day. I really, really wish my wife was here. She had to go home this morning sick. But there's one relationship that I've experienced and I've seen up close over the last seven years. I have a seven-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. It's the story of the cross enacted in motherhood. I've never seen a relationship up close that depicts the story of God as well as a mother and the way she loves her child. I'll speak on behalf of my wife, Shirley, the mother of my children. My wife, my beautiful wife that I adore so much, gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. Why? Because she loves her children. I think she even loves me. It's the story of God. She rarely gets much back, let me tell you. I think we both sort of like hope, wish, dream, wait for the day that our kids will eventually grow up and, I don't know, do something for us. Get, get decent jobs, have grandchildren. That'd be nice. But my wife, she just keeps loving. She keeps giving out. That, my friends, is the story that Jesus invites us to participate in. This is the story of the cross. This is our story. It's the story that the world out there needs to, they need to see it played out. They need to know, what does a saved Christian actually look like? 
What's the real story of God? Because I tell you, I'm convinced that a massive portion of our society has been inoculated to the actual story of God. All they've heard is just this weird sort of twisted counterfeit version of the story. Over and over and over and over. And our city needs to experience the story of God as we act it out in this community, in this city, in our lives. Can we stand in prayer? Church precedent number 15. I almost forgot. In the community of redemption, God's story is most clearly told when I lay down my life in order that you might gain yours. That's the story of the cross. Father, thank you. Thank you for laying down your life that we might gain yours. And thank you for including us in what you're doing uh, in this world. Thank you for giving us your spirit so that we're not simply left to try to, 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 to will it to simply just do what we ought, but you, you've given us, you've poured your love into our hearts for the Holy Spirit whom you've given to us. And so your story is not just information about who you are, it's a reality that you've invited us to participate in. Help us, Father. Help us to love each other. Help us to be a community that, that loves this city, that loves Portland, that loves the world in a way that demonstrates who you are. And Father, thank you for our moms. I pray that you would bless every mom and grandma here, not here, all of our moms this morning. I pray that as they continue to selflessly pour out themselves and to serve their children and their families, Father, they would be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.